I want to share an extraordinary journey with you. Just before COVID-19 changed the world, I visited Australia and discovered that there's really no other country quite like it. There's something truly unique that links Aussies together, a shared spirit and attitude that's created their lifestyle. Beyond the beaches and barbecues, Australia is a land rich in culture, innovation and opportunity. Once travel becomes a reality again, it needs to be experienced to be fully understood. And I promise you, it's a place that will stay with you long after your visit. Join me as I explore. Australia, a country envied for its warm climate, beach-going lifestyle and world-class food and wine. It's a land of dramatic landscapes, from the bright copper hue of the red centre to the white sand and turquoise waters of its endless beaches to the rainbow of piercing colours found in its native flora. It offers cosmopolitan cities, relaxed coastal towns and outback communities where you can take yourself away from it all and be a hundred miles from anyone else. The rare privilege of a true escape. I'm Georgina Godwin, and for this series, Only in Australia, I visited every corner of Australia to explore the unique nature of Australian luxury travel and to meet some of the country's creative entrepreneurs and ecotourism pioneers. In this episode, I meet some of Australia's best and brightest tourism minds and reveal how their visions and ambition have transformed the premium tourism landscape to offer luxury travellers access to experiences, environments and jaw-dropping accommodation. We're currently at Mount Mulligan Lodge. We're on 28,000 hectares. Um, we also have four pavilions, which houses eight rooms, our main pavilion and our pool and our recreational area. We have a helicopter once a day. That's how our guests arrive. Uh, they fly in and fly out. So it's a pretty spectacular trip. With a heady mixture of bravery and optimism, Australians face opportunity with energy and courage. And their cultural irreverence spirit is always looking for new ways to challenge and improve the way things are done. My background's uh, medical background. I'm an ONG specialist. I work in fertility medicine and deliver babies and I started distilling in 2016 as I turned a hobby into a business. Where else can you choose from over 11,000 beaches, explore the world's largest living organism or get up close to kangaroos and quokkas? This is Only in Australia. The country's entrepreneurial spirit is well known and no better embodied than through the can-do attitude of luxury innovators. One couple who've really harnessed this are James and Haley Bailey, who, as well as running their own high-end tourism business, formed an industry body. 
Luxury Lodges is an industry collective. We came up with the idea um, just over 10 years ago, and it's effectively a group of owners of luxury lodges that in some ways we're competitors, and in many ways we're competitors, but if we wind the uh, clock back, we got together because we all realised that Australia wasn't really known as a destination for experiential luxury like Southern Africa was. And there had been quite a bit of development of high-end luxury experiential accommodations across the country just over a decade ago. And what we did was we looked and thought, okay, well, how are we going to tell the world that Australia's come of age in terms of this new wave of, of luxury? Well, that's what we did. We, we banded together and realised that we were going to do much better if we partnered up. So we formed Luxury Lodges of Australia, which is actually a non-for-profit marketing collective, all owned by us as members. And I've been lucky to be the chair of it since uh, inception. People can come and they can have a short trip and come and do maybe one or two lodges and combine it with one of our great city experiences. Or they could do the ultimate trip and take in sort of all 18 or 19 members or come back many times and uh, really see the length and the breadth of the country that we have. I went to visit one of the Bailey's lodges, Longitude 131, right in the red heart of Australia. So welcome back or welcome to the Uluru Katajuta National Park. I would like to now welcome you in the native town of Pitinjara by saying Pukupa, Pujama, Ananuku, Norugutu, which means welcome to Aboriginal land. I'm at Uluru and I'm with a very small group. There's a, a little bush bar being set up. We're drinking champagne in this incredibly spiritual place the rock is towering above me it's absolutely glowing red as the sun is setting and you can see the colour of the rock changing as the sun goes down it's so still and so beautiful and so incredibly spiritual Hayley told me more about the design aspect of Longitude 131. I think we always set out to create a real sense of place for our guests. And in doing that, we want to stay very true to the landscape that the lodges sit within and also to the Australian designer setting. But also the little injection as well of amazing international design here and there where it's um, required you just see something that you know is perfect for the location. You think, oh, we've, we somehow we've got to put that in it as well. So it's trying to stay very true to where the property actually sits and keeping those Australian design principles and being true to what we feel is contemporary Australian aesthetics. I mean, it's extraordinary thinking now about your lodge at Uluru, Longitude 131, where it is so beautiful, but you've got this absolutely dominating geological feature. And the lodge doesn't fight with that in any way. It sort of complements it. I think that's what we really we set out to do. Uluru, Katachuta really have such an incredible spiritual 
connection to the land. They, they allow you to connect to the land and to be able to feel that you're in a location that is complementing that and makes you feel that it's all about the exterior and what's out there, but also making you feel comfortable and cocooned and with the little little touches here and there that make it not as harsh as if you really were camping out in the middle of central Australia, especially if it was summertime, for example. <laughs> it's a deeply, deeply spiritual place. Uh, and you have really made an effort to, to work alongside and integrate with the Indigenous people of the area. I'm very proud of our partnerships that we have with the art centres out in central Australia. A number of these communities have no other form of non-government money coming in except through these art centres. So it's a great way of reconciliation. It's uh, a great method of elders being able to pass down their stories to younger generations, keeping culture strong. And it's a way for them to have money brought in that they can spend on their children or on themselves or to have that sense of... I create something beautiful and somebody wants that and I can have a business sense out of that, which is something that we're really proud of because there is lots of uh, struggles with these remote communities and if this is a way of being able to allow them to be more independent, then it's fantastic. So I think that is one of the key elements is, is being able to support that culture, but then in return we are able to showcase these beautiful stories in both ceramics and in the canvas painted works that we collect through our associations with the the APY lands, the APY collective of art centres. And we have guests from all over the world that get exposed directly to this ancient culture. There are many little touches at the Bailey's Lodge, Longitude 131 at Uluru. The swag... um is, I suppose, an outback vernacular of the original stockmen who came to Australia because they'd be out on their horses and, you know, rounding up the cattle and it could be days and days and they have to roll out the swag, you know, in the middle of the bush. So when we concepted that under the stars sleeping experience at Longitude, we thought, well, it really needs to be in a swag. But of course, a swag, generally speaking, is made to roll out on the hard ground. And we had to change that because we have a nice mattress for the swag to go on. So we spent quite a lot of time actually researching and actually prototyping what would be our own interpretation of the swag and uh, something that could be rolled out and literally is a turn down for Under the Stars. And the whole Under the Stars experience, I should just explain, there are wonderful decks outside the, I'm going to call them tents, they're hardly tents, but outside the accommodation with a daybed on it, you've got complete view of the stars and of course as the sun goes down and comes up again, the changing face of Uluru. And uh, to go along with that, of course, there's um, some nice after-dinner digestives and uh, a few little snacks as well for those that have come back uh, from their dinner under the stars, which is our Table 131. But uh, we love to hear the stories about how long people slept outside for. And uh, in winter, that can be much shorter periods. But of course, that's when the sky is so clear and you're literally under a billion stars. And you put a hot water bottle in the David. I mean, what's not to like? You could stay out there for ages. I was there cuddling my hot water bottle. (laughs) 
It's all those little touches, I think, for us. Um, it's part of the theatre, but it's also things that don't expect. And it comes down to exceeding people's expectations. And in summer at Longitude, you come back from a warm a warm tour. You've been out with your guide and you know, seeing an incredible sunrise, but you come back and it's really hot and you'll walk in and we have you know homemade popsicles, for example, icy poles at the front door, or in winter it might be a beautiful consomme. All of those touches that really all bundle up together to make something much more than just a hotel room. And you're really living an experience, which mm. is what sets us apart. I then went to meet Hayley Morris, who's the executive director of Morris Group Northern Escape Collection. The group are the owners of Mount Mulligan, a lodge deep in the outback of the eastern state of Queensland, built around a former mining town and chiefly accessed by helicopter from the coastal town of Cairns. So my father is one of those people who loves to work and so part of his retirement plan out of the business which he founded was to buy businesses rather than play golf. Sometimes we probably would have liked him to have spent more time playing golf but his way of relaxing was to buy businesses that he enjoyed in his spare time so that meant hospitality and it also meant resorts. So we started off with a microbrewery a venue in in Perth, which led to an acquisition of a number of venues in Victoria, which then led to um, the acquisition of Orpheus Island Lodge, which is a beautiful resort on the Great Barrier Reef. And we then added Daintree Eco Lodge and realised that we had a bit of a niche, I guess, in Queensland um, and North Queensland. So what we had with the rainforest and we had the reef, we wanted to complete that trilogy with an outback experience. And so we actively went out, um, looked for a property, uh, found Mount Mulligan Station, which was just a cattle station at the time, uh, and an absolutely amazing um, landscape, the backdrop of Mount Mulligan, which is um, effectively a, a a big rock and very undiscovered area of Queensland. So we've just completed and launched uh, the Matt Mulligan Lodge, which is another luxury uh, resort as part of the group. For a lot of our international guests who do want to experience the outback, they often come on very short itineraries and don't have a lot of time. So actually travelling from North Queensland, probably to a, a central city like Melbourne or Sydney, and then to an outback, there's a lot of time travelling. I mean, Australia is a, a huge country, and I think that's always underestimated when travellers come here, how much time they then have to spend in airports. So for us, it was how do we give people that experience and actually just be able to get them from lodge to lodge using a helicopter, which... Uh, Interestingly, we also have a helicopter business which can uh, get people from for, uh, between our resorts in a really short amount of time. And in fact, a helicopter to each resort is, a, is an amazing way to travel. It's a part of the trip in itself. Seatbelts must be worn at all times. Our crew will show you how they work when you are loaded. All of our helicopters have either three or four doors. These doors also we flew over stunning scenery for about half an hour before Mount Mulligan appeared below us. Hi, Ian. Nice to meet you. And you. Welcome home. <laughs> wasn't very far. <laughs> oh wow, look at this, it's beautiful. We're currently at Mount Mulligan Lodge in North Queensland. 
Uh, we're a cattle station. We're on 28,000 hectares. We currently have 1,900 head of cattle. Um, we also have four pavilions, which houses eight rooms, our main pavilion and our pool and our recreational area. And that's the sound of the helicopter departing. It is, yeah. We have a helicopter once a day, um, which disrupts the noise a bit. Um, but that's how our guests arrive. Uh, they fly in and fly out. So it's a pretty spectacular trip. It's a 30-minute trip from Cairns. I then went to have a look at my accommodation. I'm sitting on the balcony of my room, which is mm, probably about the same size as my house in London. There's a sitting area and kitchen, a bathroom with a bath outside on the veranda looking out, a day bed, a great big planter's chair. The bed, as you imagine, is huge. Lots of beautiful hard wood everywhere and then looking out across the stunning view of Mount Mulligan and kind of a sweeping lawn down to some gum trees, then the lake, and then a cliff, and behind that, the rolling hills. All I can hear is the wind rustling the gums, bees, and birds. There's no mobile reception. I could be the only person in the world. But I wasn't the only person in the world. I went to join the other guests and the manager, Ian, to hear about the history of the property. The town had a population of 300 people. Unfortunately, on the 19th of September, 1921, there was an explosion at 9.25am that killed uh, the 74 miners present and the mine manager the following day. You can still see the relics today. It closed for two years. There was a colonial inquest and unfortunately it came back inconclusive. There were three possibilities. However, the town lost pretty much one third of its population. So unfortunately, the town withered away. The Queensland government then took over the mine and um, it continued on until 1958. Uh, when the hydroelectric program continued, this became obsolete due to the uh, poor quality of the coal. So what we're standing in today is the railway, where the railway would have come up. Behind me is the tippling station and the weigh station, where the coal was weighed and tipped into the carts. And then if you can see to your right, you've got the chimney, which was part of the power station as well. Just like Mount Mulligan is today, self-sufficient, so was the town back then. Ian also gave us a bit of an outback vegetation education. So if you have a look closely, you can see why it's called speargrass. It has these spear style of tips, mm. gets into your socks and you won't be able to get them out if you're wearing them. Otherwise it kind of, this is what forms over the dry season and this will form a little tumbleweed and it'll get blown off the tops of the grass and it'll fly down the road and eventually it'll stop and find a spot. What happens is the wet season will come along and the rains will pour down and then this is when these guys come into action. So I'll mimic wet season. There's the tumbleweed part. If you watch closely, you'll see it come to life. What it'll happen is that'll then move and find the wettest part. It'll dig into the sand, release the seed, 
and then it'll grow again over the wet season. Ian is part of a strong team who are helping innovate the top-end holiday experience by making it about more than just a luxurious stay. Staff development is key, and together they make it about the entire package. The landscape, the environment, the history, and of course, the food. I met the head chef, Amanda. Well, basically I just sit down with you guys and um, talk about how I structure the food here. So... What you're going to expect is that breakfast and lunch are both a la carte services. You have a choice between about three or four different options, but at the same time, if you want anything else, like if you want bacon, you want avocado, like extra mountains and stuff, let me know. I can do it. And then for dinner time, like this evening, it's going to be more of a family style. So we have Bella Sato's pasture-red summer-lad free-range chickens, and they're bred down in Innisfail. So they will be the protein for tonight's family-style dinner. I asked Hayley Morris to tell us more about how her company expands that top-end experience. I think historically luxury has been associated with a butler in a bow tie, very formal, um, probably I'd be referred to as Ms Morris, and, uh, you know, shiny and perfect and, uh, and quite controlled. What we want people to turn up to our resorts and realise that they're in the outback or they're on an island or they're in the rainforest and therefore they need to celebrate the fact that there might be a green tree frog in the toilet or um, there are bugs around and we don't want to be spraying spray everywhere to get rid of bugs because you know that might be more luxurious that it's it's a perfect environment uh that's not real and so laid back for us is about giving people something which is real and it's part of the environment and there are times that in particularly in the daintree where you know there are there are bugs around so you you've got to make sure you wear your bug spray otherwise that's going to impact your time uh but that probably comes back to the staff and how they manage it uh but yeah we have had people turn up and be disappointed that they've ended up with a tree frog in their toilet and we've found that like an amazing experience and they should be celebrating it. So that's, I guess, we're our way of saying laid-back luxury. I've just got out of a wonderful bath that is on the balcony of this great room. And I lay in the bath and looked up at the stars. I could see the Southern Cross and hear all these wonderful crickets and birds. I saw a wallaby. And I do feel this is the ultimate luxury, to be out here with no one else and to have nature just all around. All too soon, it was time to climb back in the helicopter and head back to the city. After all that, I needed a drink. Luckily, I know a man who has just the tonic and the artisanal gin to go with it. Toby Angsman is a distiller and an obstetrician. He runs Underground Spirits. I went to meet him in Canberra. This business came about because I wanted to make gin. I wanted to make spirits. I 
have a background in chemistry and I was travelling in the United Kingdom. I'd just done a medical emergency trauma course and I was first on scene to a motorcycle accident with some wheels still spinning and being involved in that incident kind of just made me realise life was a bit short and there were some things I really wanted to do and I'd wanted to do distilling. I'd always been fascinated by how you can tease little bits out of complex solutions, how you can play around with heat and energy and flavours and you know there was no time like the present and coming back to where I live in Canberra from the United Kingdom I realised that we've got some really beautiful places here you know I'm looking out now over my distillery with this huge these beautiful eucalypt trees some some pine trees a big expanse of water with ducks and there's not it's often that we have kangaroos visiting us here at the distillery too and um, you know, we've got extremely clean air we've got an incredible natural environment and you know the bones of what we do um, the water um, the, as many of the botanicals as we can, which are naturally sourced, often hand-picked, we've, we've taken from our environment and we've, and we've blended into our um, spirits. So how does a busy obstetrician start a distillery? With lots of help. So I've got my sister, Claudia, who's now kind of the CEO of the business, to, to thank for that. But when I started, I, the thing was that we weren't trying to be a commercial beef eater type gin distillery. You know, we're about craft and doing things precisely doing things on on a scale where we could we could really play with the art of making spirits and I when I started I envisaged that we would be selling at our local farmers market and maybe doing a little bit of stuff through some of the local bottle shops and I didn't really have the understanding that would become this thing that would that would reach out over the world so I'm very pleased with that and that's brought its own challenges but I think at its core we're still a innovative, small-scale, adaptive, dynamic craft distillery. I was struck by the idea that I couldn't see how mainstream spirit production was really levering the most modern technologies and the privileged position I had from medicine kind of brought that question into my mind as I was visiting these incredible, iconic distilleries through the UK and, and Scotland. I was just struck by the fact that Technology now moves forward and it moves forward at such a tremendous pace and medicine, particularly reproductive medicine where I spend a lot of my time, you know, it is adaptive and dynamic and I thought that we could really do something special if we levered some of those technologies and we translated them into processes around production of spirits and we really focused on that kind of nano purity. And so we came up with a novel process to do that and, and that underpins what we do across our range. Uh, and, of course, the ingredients that you use. Uh, now, we are here at your distillery. In the background, we can hear cockatoos, <laughs> hundreds of cockatoos. But where we are and what you're looking out on really is very much at the heart of what it is that you do. You know, Canberra is a made place. It supposedly means meeting place. And that really is the coming together of things. And here we have the coming together of environment we have this place which which borrows from the native landscape the hills and the valleys and the regions form this plan of camera and the place is built around that but it's also about things changing and, and government being here and and the fact that the world moves forward and everything has is constantly evolving is kind of imbued in the dna of this place our philosophy is pretty simple clean as you can pure as you can 
and layer the notes such that they tell a story, such that they bring things together. And whether that's making cold brew coffee, where we work with our local coffee people. Canberra's got an amazing coffee tradition and there are experts in that who far exceed my knowledge. So we, we work with one of those experts and we make a cold brew coffee, which brings that together, whether it be with our vodka, which is our kind of main clear amazing thing, or our Shiraz gin, which which takes barrels, you know, the you know, in this kind of sustainable way, uses uses what has finished being useful for another industry and, and makes something new from legacy of its previous use. You know, that innovation can be about using old and different things and translating them into new ways. Now, will you make me the perfect gin and tonic? <laughs> I, can, I can try. I think the, the, the main thing about gin, by my surgically clean hands here, the main thing about a gin is, is ice. So you want to you have ice up to, so that the glass is completely full with ice. Because about a third of the content will be, will be ice. And the next thing you want to do is you want to add your gin so that the gin coats the ice as it, as it kind of falls its way down the glass. And you want to have a nice healthy pour and what, whether the ratio is three to one or two to one, but you want the gin to cover the ice and you want it to sit like that for a while. The next part of the gin and tonic is then the tonic and you want to use a high quality tonic. Anything with natural quinine is what I would recommend and we're going to use um, as many people do, one of the classic fever trees. This is the low jewel iteration of their tonic. And then I'm going to serve this garnish free. The garnish that many people do enjoy for ours is a citrus garnish. Citrus notes, uh, we don't have any citrus elements except for a lemon myrtle in our gin. So a, a citrus garnish kind of just emphasizes and brings some, some of those freshness into the mix. I'll, I'll leave that with you to decide if you think that's a that's a appreciably okay gin and tonic, but I, I love it. So. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. That's good. It was more than an okay gin and tonic, and in the interests of research, I might even have had a second, or perhaps a third. Join me next time as I explore Australian design and architecture as well as sense of place. One thing I've been very keen about is displaying as much Tasmanian art as possible and having a very good library. But architecture really is the thing that is outstanding. I indulge my love of bathrooms in a fabulous shower in a stylish Melbourne hotel. I should be so lucky, 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 lucky. I should be so lucky in love. And I visit a tented camp for a long soak. I don't think a glamping property is a glamping property without a super hot shower and a hot bath. My name's Georgina Godwin, and thank you for listening to Only in Australia. This podcast was brought to you in partnership with Tourism Australia. To find out more about some of the luxury experiences I've mentioned, head to australia.com.